The full rankings are out today for the 2022 best places to work in the federal government. NASA, the Government Accountability Office, and the Congressional Budget Office took the number one spots for large, mid-sized, and small agencies created by the Partnership for Public Service and the Boston Consulting Group. But even for some of the best places to work, employee engagement and satisfaction scores are still on the decline. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from the partnership's president and CEO, Max Steyer. I think it's concerning. Whether I'm surprised or not, I am concerned. And it's not just this year. It's the fact that this is two years running, um, a more, much more consequential drop last year. Um, but we're going in the wrong direction, and that's not good for anybody. From what you've seen or heard or what the partnership has been looking at, what do you think are some of the contributing factors to this declining score? Worth Recalling that this is uh, data that was collected last year, essentially mid-year last year, and uh, there was a lot going on. And, you know, federal employees, like every American, had to deal with inflation that was substantially higher than any of us could, you know, remember in, in near term. And it made a real difference for people's lives. You know, for federal employees, what's a little different is that they experience the the impact themselves directly, and many of them are again, on the front lines of trying to deal with the problem itself. We certainly had and continue to have turmoil over the operating condition of the government, like whether folks are required to be in office while they're working or they can work in other places. And I think uncertainty is not a good thing. In any sort of organizational context, it causes oftentimes more harm than, you know, answers that are unpleasant, but but at least are known. You know, you combine the increased workload from, uh, the many, many commitments that are being made at the federal level with the broader economic issues and the challenging work environments. And that's a you know tough combination. I think the message, however, for leaders in the Biden administration is that they have more to do. They need to step up. Um, that's their responsibility to deliver services to the public effectively. And having an engaged workforce is fundamental in, in, in the ability to succeed in doing that. One thing that was striking to me from the results was that, at least in the top 10 large agencies, only two actually increased their agency-specific engagement and satisfaction scores overall. Do you think that there's some sort of takeaway or, or lesson that agencies who maybe did a little bit better in the rankings, is there anything that other agencies maybe can learn from that? It's a good observation that even those that were on top still largely saw declines at the large agency level, and that's less true in the you know medium and small. And I think, importantly, it, it's still the case that a quarter of the organizational components that we measured, so you know agency or subcomponent, they went up. And it's so important because we did just discuss many of the large environmental issues that I think, play a role in, in in the decline. But the fact that a quarter of those agencies still went up tells you that good leaders can overcome difficult environments. And I think the consistent lesson for all of us is, you know, you need leaders who first and foremost care. So understand that this is a fundamental part of their job uh, is to create environments that engage their employees and to prioritize it because there's so much going on that the tendency, especially for short-term leaders, is to focus on what they think is the immediate delivery and not worry about the longer-term uh, investments that are, are important. 
and three, that they uh, have the skills and capabilities to succeed as, as leaders of these large organizations. These jobs are unbelievably hard, I believe way harder than the private sector. And we need people who have the right skills that are not policy experts, but, but large organization experts in these positions, and that they're supported for making the human investments that are fundamental to long-term success. In some of the conversations that I've had with agency leaders, when they look at the best places to work rankings, for example, uh, chief human capital officers at NASA over the years have talked about, you know, with their rankings, it's not necessarily as important where you fall compared to other agencies, but looking within your long-term trends within your own agency, does that hold true for you? Where, you know, where do you see the line between how much or where agency leaders should be paying attention to the results here? If you're an individual leader responsible for a single agency, I think you absolutely should be looking at the trend line. And no one should feel like they can rest on their laurels uh, just because you know they're at the top, like in NASA, or give up because they're at the bottom. Like I think the trend line is is really fundamental. But no agency operates within a talent vacuum, and I think it's very important to benchmark yourself against your peer agencies and also against the private sector because once again, the federal government isn't even though it sometimes behaves this way, uh, a, a isolated island. It, it exists within the larger framework of a national labor market and private sector actors are competing for the best of talent against the federal agencies. So they need to provide not just the sense of purpose, which is profoundly special in the government, but also well-run, well-led organizations if they're going to not just recruit, but retain the best talent. So you need to do both. You need to look at your own individual trend line. You need a benchmark against you know, the the larger labor market, you need to understand what's happening and, you know, respect the fact that you may be swimming upstream against difficult issues, but you still can have an impact. Aside from the overall rankings, the partnership also measures different performance categories, things like pay, innovation, work-life balance, effective leadership. Scores from federal employees are generally on the decline there as well. Let's take work-life balance as an example. Where would you attribute that trend to? Federal agencies are being asked to do a lot more. You know, many of them have more resources for the first time, and that's exciting. But public servants are working hard. And I think that certainly the broader question of uh, the hybrid and the effacing of the line between your work environment and your home environment is presented not just to the federal workforce, but to, to many traditional office workers. I mean, there are a lot of people who, you know, are, are operating in the same way, the deskless you know, workforce, which is very, very large. But for many federal employees, yes, they're facing that very difficult juggling act. And I think it shows up in the numbers. The bigger changes are on things like satisfaction of pay. And again, I think that's probably related to the inflation issues that uh, subsided, but were, were, that are still there and that were quite large when the data was collected. And, you know, I think the drop in, in you know, perspectives on empowerment in the leadership category is also pretty important. Um, the sense of autonomy that I think is very important to job satisfaction. Can you explain more why that drop in the score for leadership empowerment is significant for federal agencies? The distinct advantage the federal government has over the private sector, certainly the, the for-profit sector, is that core mission focus. That's the, the purpose is, is overwhelmingly amazing. You know, the other big 
contributor to someone's experience at work is your boss and your frontline supervisor for sure. And your senior leaders who present the, you know, the, 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 the either support a healthy, effective supervisor group or not. And the federal government has suffered relative to the private sector and the quality of experience with respect to leadership. That remains the case. You know, the senior leaders in particular, 25 point gap this time between supervisors and senior leaders. One element we break this, the leadership piece down into different components is this sense of empowerment. Do leaders offer employees a feeling that they have substantial or, or appropriate control over the factors that they believe are necessary to do their jobs well? And that number went down. It's the lowest component of the, the leadership scores that, that we track. It helps provide some guidance, I think, for leaders to understand, you know, how do they turn this around? Part of it is by really giving their workforce both the skills and investment necessary to do their jobs well and the autonomy to do what they can do. Immediate supervisors do typically get higher scores than agency leaders. Why is that? And have you ever seen that trend reverse? It's almost a little bit a version of, you know, you're, you like your individual congressman, but you don't think well of Congress. A long time back, there was an example where that, that had flipped for a particular agency. That's very, very rare. A 25-point gap, which is what exists right now between supervisor and senior leader, that's very large. It doesn't have to be that large. So it may be that you'll always have or most always have the better perception of your frontline supervisor, but there's a lot of room for improvement for senior leaders before they get to the point of flipping it. The partnership's rankings last year saw a steep drop in satisfaction since 2020, and at the time, many people were saying the government was at something called an inflection point. There's this moment where agencies were seeing the scores decreasing, and it was up to them to take action to turn things around. Are we still at that inflection point a year later, and how do agencies turn things around from here? It's so important not to see this as a a sort of a, a sprint to the test where the goal is, you know, how do I just improve next year's scores? The longer term trend lines are really quite relevant, especially for the large agencies. It takes, you know, a considerable amount of time to to move the ship. You know, on one hand, one might argue, oh, it's a one point drop rather than a four point drop or whatever it is. I think it's the wrong direction for most agencies and it's the wrong direction for the overall government, for sure. How you turn it around is easy said, hard to do. The you know easy said is that you need leaders to first and foremost care enough that they prioritize this as an issue. And I think part of the challenge is that many leaders see their job as delivering for the present rather than investing for the future. There's understandable reasons for that, but I don't think at the end of the day they're the right, that's the right choice. Once again, even in an environment where you've seen decline, there's still a case that a quarter of the organizations went up. And I would look to those places and the leaders in those places and what they're doing for good examples of how to change things around. It's first and foremost an issue of of caring and prioritizing and then making the, the smart investments and building off success. Oftentimes people look at the broken elements of, of things and frankly, more progress can be made on building on your strengths often than trying to to deal with weaknesses. You should deal with weaknesses, but you know people overlook how important it is to build on strength. And even in organizations that are seeing declines, my bet is they have components that are bucking the trend and that are going up. And I'd be paying attention to what the leadership is doing in those components. 
Something that the partnership has done a lot of research on and just discussed a lot is public trust in government. Does that connect back to some of the trends that we're seeing in the rankings here? There is certainly a relationship. And I think public trust, first and foremost, is, I believe, fundamental to our long-term success, our health of our democracy, and the willingness of the public to look to our government and invest in our government for big issues. So I think that the connection to me is back to mission delivery. And what most people need to, what everyone should understand is that um, this is not about happy employees. The employee engagement and satisfaction scores are about whether you have employees that are in environments that are going to generate the the, the best outcomes uh, for the American people. And I think one part of trust in government is the trustworthiness of government. So I don't think it's everything. Like, I think you can have a trustworthy government that people don't really understand and therefore don't trust as much as they should. But very, very hard to have a trusted government if it's not delivering effectively on what it's supposed to do. What would be a final message that you'd want to leave agencies with as they're looking at these results? The most important thing is how much this matters to the the mission and purpose of, of each and every one of these organizations. And the more leaders uh, embrace that, the more they recognize that an engaged workforce is fundamental to the success of the mission of the agency, the more likely it is that they do the right thing, which is to care and prioritize and invest in outcomes that will generate healthy, engaged workforces. Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story and find more of this interview about the best places to work at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Agriculture Department's top research and education priorities. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.